Welcome to the Presentation Boss Podcast. I'm Kate Norris. I'm Thomas Craft. And we're here to help you plan, design, and deliver your best presentation. Episode 46 of the Presentation Boss Podcast, and I am well excited for this one. (laughs) Because last year, when we put together our list of guests that we really want on this podcast, people we admire and believe would bring great value, I put this guy at number one, and it was like... Such a pinnacle of somebody we'd have to work towards. You know, it didn't feel like we'd get him so soon and the stars aligned. And today we have an interview with Phil M. Jones. Yes, so we followed Phil M. Jones or PMJ as we colloquially (laughs) (laughs) refer to him for years. And we happened to see that he was visiting Brisbane a couple of weeks ago. So we reached out and managed to score a couple of hours with him in person, which was hugely exciting. Oh, yeah. Because we were hoping for like half an hour on Zoom, maybe a little bit later. Yeah. So it was really fun and valuable to sit down over a coffee and talk about sales, our podcast and business in general. He gave us some really great advice, some business advice and some podcast advice. I think it's actually going to influence how we do a few things in our podcast. And also he was just a really cool guy to hang out with. I really enjoyed just hanging out with Phil. He's a lovely man, yeah. Yeah, and eventually we remembered, hey, we're there to record a podcast, so we sat in his hotel room and recorded for an hour. So Phil has a series of books, he's got an Audible original workshop, and we recommend reading anything you can, listening to other podcasts that he's been on, for his insight into the concepts and how-to of persuasion and sales without feeling icky. Yeah, Uh, his best-selling book, Exactly What to Say, I forget how many times I've read my copy because of the super simple, easy-to-read and apply concepts in it. And uh, my copy of Exactly What to Say sits in the quick reference section of the bookshelf on my desk. I would pick it up every day. So naturally, when we went and saw Phil M. Jones, I took it with me and he signed it because he's a lovely human being. But he also gave us a copy that he has signed and we're giving it away on this podcast. So if you stick around to the end of this episode, we're going to tell you exactly how you could be in the draw to win a signed copy of Phil M. Jones's Exactly What to Say. Would you say you'll learn exactly how to win? (sighs) If I must. So anyway, let's get into today's episode. Phil M. Jones has made it his life's work to demystify the sales process, reframe what it means to sell, and help his audiences to learn new skills that empower confidence, overcome fears, and instantaneously impact bottom line results. Author of five international best-selling books and the youngest ever winner of coveted British Excellent in Sales and Marketing Award, Phil is currently one of the most in-demand assets to companies worldwide. He is by no means your typical sales expert. With the experience of over 2,000 presentations in over 50 countries across five continents, Phil has a busy and active travel schedule. When not on the road, you'll find him at home in New York City or in his peaceful retreat in Buckinghamshire, England. All right, so we're here in Brisbane with Phil M. Jones. Phil, thank you so much for joining us on the Presentation Boss podcast. I'm glad this worked out. It's great to be here live with you in Australia. Yeah, yeah very sure. exciting. So, Phil, we've just read your bio. What is between the lines of it? What is in your bio that you're not kind of telling us? Tell us about who <laughs> Phil is. What's not in the bio? I mean, how long we got? Next, like, six weeks? <laughs> um, tell me what you really mean. What do you think? What do you mean? Who is Phil when he's not just a... Um, a curated bio? Um, I guess I'm just a normal guy. 
Um, I like to be able to hang out with my family. I like to be able to spend time with friends. I enjoy going for a walk. I occasionally love to cook on the barbecue. What else do I like to be able to do is, yeah, trying to stay fit and healthy, trying to continually grow my own personal development. And and, and that's about it. Not that interesting, to be honest. Uh, I think everyone's got their interesting bits. Don't say that. (laughs) So can you tell us about your sales journey that's led you to this point in your career? Yeah, I mean, I guess I've been in business forever. Is is something that I I really, very, very rarely tell people is is my first business started when I was fourteen years of age. Mm-hmm. But prior to even me starting that first business at fourteen years of age, is is I was looking at ways that I could make more money through adding value to things. The first thing I started to add value to was my mum made me sandwiches that she sent me to school with. And very few of the other kids at school had homemade packed lunches as they were just given money by their parents to be able to go get something to eat. And I could sell my sandwiches to those kids um, for a significant margin. I did pretty well out of that. And then I would go to, um, to the lunch hall and get my own lunch with the money that I had made and then, and then keep the change. So I've been doing this stuff for quite some time. My sales journey has been, has been very fun in the fact that it wasn't pre-prescribed with I'm going to go here to here to here to here to here it was always I want to do more I want to get better I understand there is something the other side of this that if I keep progressing and I've yeah. I've been on this relentless quest for better my whole entire life particularly from a professional point of view so yes I had businesses through my teens at the age of 18 I was the youngest sales manager for a business called Debenhams department stores and that was cool because you're leading teams of people that are almost every single one of them is older than you and responsible mm. for significant levels of turnover. And at 18, I looked like I was 15. So that there was this <laughs> prejudgment towards what does this kid know? Yeah. And, and I was mildly arrogant at that point in my life. I did think I probably knew more than I needed to, but it was a great big wake-up call of all of those leadership positions I had through my late teens, early 20s, um, in that you have to earn respect. Is you can't just show yeah. up with an I know. It doesn't matter that you've read something that you think that you're smarter. You have to win the respect of other people. Mm. And I guess my, my early sales career was very much based on how do I sell myself into a position that the people I'm looking to influence would trust me? More so yeah. than how do I sell this thing? It was how do I get into a position where I can get people to believe the stuff that I've learned to be true so that they can believe the stuff that I've learned to be true yeah. for themselves. Um, Does that underpin a lot of your... Uh, philosophy now? Yeah, I, I think it was great grounding because what it leads towards is one of my key principles that prescription before diagnosis is malpractice, right? Is this idea that just because you know how something should be um, doesn't mean you have the right to go tell somebody that that's how they should do things. Mm. Is that you actually have to draw it in, you have to understand that their circumstances are are unique. And even if what you know to be true is true within 99.9% of circumstances, you still have to go on a process of exploration. To say, am I definitely dealing with the 99.9% of circumstances or is there a possibility that you're in the point one? Mm. Um, yeah, right. And it's taught me that really my, the number one ingredient, I think, to, to succeed in influencing others, sales, whatever you choose to call it, and possibly the missing ingredient in most people's process is curiosity. It's this need to say, well, hold on, let me be sure and reach a position of certainty before I have certainty in my offerings, before I have certainty in what I'm looking for somebody to be able to do. So people need to get better at asking questions, which for anybody who knows my work, really, it is it is all focused around how to ask more intelligent, well-crafted questions to earn you the right to say what you're going to say. Yep. 
So if I can go back a step, you said you have a constant quest for personal development and being better. Yep. Why is that? Like, you, you must have started or early on had a position where you were comfortable, I guess. Okay. What, what, why is there that drive to always be better? Well, first, I don't think I've ever been comfortable. It is, is my truth is that is, I, I like to think that if I'm not growing in some way, then dang, I would be horribly bored. <laughs> yep. And I got a definition of success that was shared with me when I was maybe 18, 19, 20 um, through a leadership program that I was part of. And the quote was from a guy called Paul J. Meyer. And Paul J. Meyer said that success is the progressive realization of predetermined worthwhile and achievable goals. And the word in that 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 really struck me was progressive. You know, the progressive realization of predetermined worthwhile and achievable goals. It's not it's not like that I'm going to achieve one thing once and therefore I am then be successful. It's this continued quest to say, I'm working on something and then I'm going to feel a sense of achievement. And then I'm going to work on something else and I'm going to feel a sense of achievement. I'm going to work on something else. I also love modeling in terms of seeing, can I reverse engineer the brilliance I see in other people and try and get to the bottom of what really is? Often people see somebody who's better at them than something and their natural reaction is like, wow, like they have to look up to them and it's like, wow, that guy's awesome, that girl's awesome. My natural reaction when I see somebody who's better than me at something that I admire is not to say wow, instead it's to say how. It's like, how do they yeah. do that? How, how's that really happening? Yeah, but how really? And see if I can get three, five, seven, nine levels deep on that and find the mechanics. I have a very simple belief for anybody who's human looking to be able to better themselves, that is, if somebody else can do it, can somebody else be me? Um, and that's a question I often ask myself. And it doesn't mean that anything is possible. It means the very purest nature in that question. If somebody else can do it, can somebody else be me? Um, sometimes the answer to that question is no, right? Yeah. If, if somebody else can run the 100 meters in 9.96 seconds, <laughs> can that somebody else be me? No, right? <laughs> like, am I going to be a, an, an Olympic athlete that is going to be able to do the high jump at 2.9 meters or whatever? No. No, the answer to that question is no. But lots of things... When you test yourself with that question, the answer is yes, providing you're prepared to do the work, providing you're prepared to be able to understand what would it take to be able to get there. Yeah. That's actually the um, driving like phrase that I used when I was learning to drive. Right. I couldn't, I couldn't get the clutch thing happening when I was, you know, 16. And the whole time I was like, you know what? My grandma can do this. If she can do it, I can do it. There you go. Right. And, you know, pick your grandma, pick anybody else. Yeah. Like, yeah. Is, is that ability to better look into the world and say that somebody else has achieved something that is aspirational towards you it just reminds you that success leaves clues it reminds you that that if you're prepared to dig into those clues you might find your roadmap it's not a blueprint that's been ready made for you but it it, it can be found and i often get asked on these kind of interviews as as you know who's your mentor who's your go-to person that you look up to and my answer is not one person is yeah. if I if I dive into my story and say who's influenced me most, there's probably a hundred people in that list. Yeah, it's like a Frankenstein's monster <laughs> of of let me take the best bits of what I've modelled from other people's behaviour and and, and yeah. see how that cocktails into a set of ingredients for how I live my life. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. Not just that that one person. So obviously you've written a couple of books on the exactly series. No, yeah. I, I don't think you've trademarked the word exactly quite yet. Right. Uh, it's going to cost you 10 cents every time you say it. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> Presentation Boss Podcast is now looking for a sponsor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Let's talk about exactly what to say. Why is having the exact right words at the exact right time so important? Okay. Well, why do you think it's important? I know that I struggle to think in the moment. My, I get, um, you know, flight, fright, yeah. freeze. Mine is freeze. Right. And I just stop. So if I don't have something there, then I have nothing. And I, and I think you guys have just proved the answer to the question, really, is why it's important, is that when we find ourselves in moments that matter, then the natural reaction is to, to find yourself lost for words. Yeah. Or to mumble, or to stutter, or to over-communicate in a way that the other person doesn't get what you're saying. Mm. So when I write a piece of work like exactly what to say, it's not necessarily saying that the precise word choices that sit through that book need to show up in every conversation and it's all about that. If that book does one thing and one thing alone in that it makes people think about the thing they're going to say before they're going to say it, or it makes them think about the repetitive conversations that show up in their life and how can they go about being better prepared for it, then what will happen in the moments that matter is they have more confidence. What will happen in the moments that matter is that they think, I've got this. It allows them to show up more present. It allows them to have more engagement in the moment. I do a huge amount of work within large corporations helping them on scripting. The natural reaction to everybody is like, I hate scripts. Yeah. Scripts are horrible. Yeah. Scripts mm. make me feel canned. Scripts are like repetitive. Scripts are robotic. They give me this like giant list of why they hate scripts. And then I say, well, have you um, ever watched a movie and cried? That's a script. Right. And the biggest difference there is the actor had to be someone else. And the scripts that I'm giving you is, who am I asking you to be? And it's like, okay, well, that's me. And I'm like, I don't want you to read my script because you probably haven't got the British accent. You probably can't deliver it that way. But if you can take the time to craft your own scripts, then what can happen is that you can show up in that moment knowing what you need to say. Also, when you've developed a script for the key moments that happen in your life, then you can go off script more easily. That's what actually ends up happening. If we use the movie analogy again, some of the best lines, the best moments that have appeared in thousands of movies have been the magic moments that happened off script. But the only reason those magic moments happened off script is because there was a script. Yep. It creates the framework for you to be able to actually riff off of. And it also gives you a place to come back to. See, the mistake that many people make when they're looking to be able to improvise in a moment is they're brave enough to be able to improvise in the moment. They have no idea how to get back. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you think about my work um, for anybody who's seen me speak on stage is I spend a lot of my time off the stage itself and working with people in the audience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People see that and they think, hey, that's a really brave thing to be able to do. I'm going to go do that. What you have to be able to do if you're going to be prepared to leave stage is to plan how you're going to get back on. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, such a simple. Yeah. And, and you see it when anybody then tries it without giving that piece of thought. Now they're like lost, like as an island out there, like, whoa, what do I do? I walk backwards? Do I jump back up? Is there steps? <laughs> like, like, do I show my back to the audience? Like, these thousand sets of decisions come to them, but in the moment. <laughs> yeah. Where it's like a, a, like, you know, let's put an expletive word in here right now of, <laughs> oh, dang, what, what do I do? And that metaphor shows up in life. If you haven't thought about the and what next and the what next and the what next, then you can't be truly present in the moment because you're already trying to live one beat ahead. Yep. Whereas if you can actually take the time to be able to say, how do I structure what my version of normal would look like to be able to bounce it through from step to step to step, you can show up more present in any one of those moments. Yes. Um, We talked to Grant Baldwin a couple of weeks ago and he was talking about when he gives his audience time to interact you know talk to the person next to you he's like you've got to have a way to bring them back that's pre-planned sure and i think that was probably something that we hadn't thought of as deeply either of 
how do you stop people then talking other than, you know, hey guys, guys, back to me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he's got a very specific process mm. for that as well. And it's a big responsibility. If you're delivering a presentation from stage yeah. and you've got 600 people in the audience, every speaker on the planet that is inexperienced thinks that their hour is the most important hour in the world. Mm. Those that have reached a level of experience understand it's not their hour that's in question. It's the 600 hours that belong to everybody in that audience that you are the shepherd of. And that's a different level of responsibility. You have to make their hour count. You don't have to be brilliant in your hour. It's the 600 hours that actually is the thing that you are being rewarded for or recognised for. Yes. And we, we hear so often people on the stage, off the stage, wherever it is, will just say, oh, look, it's not worth me preparing because, you know, it's too hard or they don't know how. I'm better to just wing it. And they <laughs> give it a go and we've seen the results of that. And, and like you say, it makes sense that we're talking about you write a script for yourself in your own voice, how you would hope these conversations play out. Right. But it sounds like there's every possibility you'll never use the script or read the script. Right. If I think back to my early career, so I started delivering workshops and trainings and back in 2009, 2010, my core offering was a one day sales training program and it was self-hosted, would sell tickets towards that event, etc. And I didn't know the speaking business existed. Not at that level at that time. So I would speak to sell tickets to my one-day workshop. My one-day yep. workshop was really three, uh, sorry, four 90-minute segments of taking people through understanding the sales process. And I had that written word perfect as a script. Wow. Dang, I was nervous towards my first engagement. See, mm -hmm. what I did is, is I sold that course through entering into a market with a simple series of questions. I'd go to a lot of business networking events and at those events I'd ask the question, how's business? What everybody would typically say back is, well, you know, it's good. I'd follow it up with another question, which was really, and they'd say, well, you know, like things could be better. I'd say, well, what are you doing about making it better? They'd say, not much. I'd say, are you open-minded to looking at other things and other ways you could grow your business during these difficult times? They'd say, yeah, sure. I'd say, what are you doing on the 13th of March? They'd say, well, what are you thinking? I'd say, are you busy or not? And they say, no, I can be free. I say, well, that's great. I'm running a one-day program that is going to help do blank, blank, and blank. Yeah. And they'd say, will it cover this? To which I would say, yes. And that was how I built my very first program was I took the things that I thought it would need to cover and then listened to every question that people put back at the point of booking that said, will it cover this? I remember getting ready for my very first of those programs. I've now delivered over... I would say 300 of that one day program. Mm. And if anyone's listened to how to persuade and get paid, how to persuade and get paid is in fact that program delivered in a slightly different format. And getting ready for that very, very first event, I wrote my script based on that collection of will it covers. And then I actually had maybe 20 pages of A4 paper on a lectern or a podium to the side of my workshop room that I would deliver that information from. My opening monologue in those early workshops, I read from that podium word perfect to be able to get that across into that group. Yeah. And by the time you've got some reps, you no longer need the script. I was delivering a one-day program not dissimilar to those early programs just maybe three weeks ago in Tel Aviv in Israel. And the question came back is like, you've talked about the power of scripts. There's no way you were using the scripts out there today. I'm like, yes, I was. Mm. I just have the reps in it that says, I don't need the piece of paper with the words on it. I've just reinforced these into my psyche so that now they become routine and habit. And I think this is what we need as speakers. And, and now when I craft the speech, I'm just putting together a collection of bits. 
and I can write Usain, I can write the word change, I can write the word sales, I can write the word, um, I'm not sure if it's for you, but I, I, can, I can just put a simple sequence of words in a bubble and I know that that is almost the, the, uh, you know, the scripture that says, okay, that unleashes that seven minute bit just from a headline or a piece. Yeah. So I can, I can bake a speech by creating a selection of bits from microframe scripted pieces. So much to unpack here. Let's talk about the pre- that preparation then, because I guess that's a question I have. Is it feels like you're you're going through a script that you have so deeply internalised, and this content is almost just part of your DNA. Uh, but like you say, you've, you've got the reps; it just sort of is what you do now. Yeah. Engagement to engagement. Is there a preparation system or process that you go through at all at this stage? Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess every event goes through the same form of process, and and. More often than not, I come out with a very similar set of answers and outcomes mm. at the point of where the deliverable is. But I'm still going through my process in prep, trying to find out what's different, what's unusual, what's what's not not the same here. Early prep is always with the event organizer trying to understand the core objective of, of where my part in this lineup uh, shows up in their event. So I want to know commercial outcomes they're looking for, changes in behavior that they're looking for. I want to understand any key hot triggers or any any very, very powerful topics that exist within their world at that moment in time that I can help reinforce. So how can I then reach for examples that talk towards their commercial objectives from my inclusion in that speech? Other things that I really need to know from a prep point of view is, is where am I positioned in the entire lineup? Mm-hmm. So I could take the exact same speech, but I would deliver it differently if I'm an opening keynote versus if I'm a closing keynote. Versus if I'm the middle presenter in an agenda piece where after me becomes the big launch criteria from the CEO that is announcing the new product. Like I don't I don't want to steal the show when the steal the show moment is mm. the moment Do directly after my speech. Because what we are there to better do is to deliver a business objective towards that given program. So I, I have to understand where do I sit in the overarching piece. The other thing that I need to always do in prep is I need to see the room. So um, things that we often ask for ahead of time is can you send photographs, visuals, can somebody run through yeah. the room space with a, uh, with a camera, can I get a rendering, whatever it might be, can I see the space ahead of time. Other things that I always want to do in prep is, is I need to understand the word choices that exist within that organization. So How do you mean by that? So you know, is it a salesperson, is it an advisor, is it an associate? It's do you have acronyms that exist within your organization right, that yep. don't exist elsewhere? is who are the biggest competitors that exist towards you as a company and who are the biggest advocates and allies that exist as part of your group. Um, It's what would the typical day in the life of a insert different types of people in that audience look like. Help me see the world through their eyes. My belief is that every audience member, when any speaker takes the platform, um, thinks, i.e. the very first thought that enters their mind is show me that you know me. Show me that you know what it's like to be in my, my world because before yeah. you earn the right to be able to pour any of your expertise into their world, then you have to get them to understand that you have some awareness of what it's like to be in their world. Yeah. Otherwise, their little voice inside head says, yeah, but like it's not like that here. Mm. So you have to be able to say, I understand what it's like here before I can offer up any tools for refinement. I think many speakers miss that. Uh, other things that I love to do in prep is, is I want to see what's happened before me. So if I am a closing keynote on a day, is I need to know what that audience have experienced before I get there. That will typically mean that I'll sit back of the room in you know out, out of sight for the entire morning session, the entire like lunch session, 
everything that happens in, in, in pre up until my point of view because I have a duty to that audience to be able to serve yeah. them. Yeah. If I think it's my speech that's important, then I'm highly likely to miss because I'm going to say something that was either very close to what somebody else said earlier on in the programming yeah. or I could say something that's potentially in conflict to what somebody else did in the programming or I could miss an opportunity to create a callback or a join the yeah. dots app where we can create two plus two equals five. Yeah. And, and to me, that's just being professional. Yeah. It's being in service of the audience as opposed to in service of the speech. So if you're giving that closing keynote and you know, you've been there for the day during the lunch break or whatever, mm-hmm. do you go and talk to members of the audience and kind of understand them? Um, Does that throw you? I will often try to do some of those things ahead of time. So okay. I might ask to be able to say, I'm doing a big event for a, a, a larger state agency group in the UK coming up in March. And the, um, the CEO of the company that is hiring me had some reservations of whether I truly understand the world and the difference between UK estate agency and US real estate. And I believe that I do. But if he has doubts as to whether I do, my way of both a, both reinforcing my confirmation that I believe it and also giving him the confidence that I do is I would love to have three interviews with people in those roles ahead of time in prep. So I'll yeah. do you know three 30-minute interviews with those folks and then I might get a weave in. You know, I was speaking to Colin at your Norwich branch and mm-hmm. yeah. into the speech and that brings some credibility in. And more often than that, I'm looking to validate and confirm as opposed to discover anything that's new. But it gives everybody the confidence that this work has been done. And when somebody's in the booking process of hiring a professional keynote speaker, my belief is event planners and anybody involved in that decision-making process is they're not looking for brilliance. They're looking for certainty. They want certainty in that the person they're going to book is going to deliver within that time slot. And if you can offer up certainty then you're bookable. If you are trying to sell brilliance, then you're a risk. If you're a risk to an event, then that is a reason to not choose you. Yes. Mm. You know, if you think about you were catering um, food at a wedding for a thousand people, would you put a big, brave, bold choice out in front of a thousand people for what they should be eating that day and give them the understanding that they should try this new adventurous food choice? Or would you say, let's do chicken, steak and fish and a vegetarian option? Yeah. Yep. And I believe that this is what often happens is in the event planning process is, is people want, you know, be a great steak dish with some nice yep. little accompaniments to it as well. But I want I want certainty that that 60 minutes is going to be really good because I don't want to get fired and I want people to say it was a good job. Yes, because so you, your event planner's reputation is on the line really, isn't it? Yeah. To come back to the question you asked about the information I capture on the day when I'm at yep. events... I'm not necessarily talking to people prior to the event. And there's a okay. reason why. Is there's a question I know they're going to ask of me that I don't want to answer. And they're going to say, so what are you going to talk about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> and I do not want to answer that question. I don't want to have to showboat my expertise prior to being able to speak on the stage. I don't want to have to be able to tackle that. So I avoid it. And I avoid that best by not being there. So I will listen through observation it's quite nice being me and that nobody knows who I am until after my speech. Hmm. And I can hang around conversations. I can you know, be a professional listener um, <laughs> and capture a huge amount of wisdom that way around. And that's why I typically avoid going to pre-event drinks receptions and yeah, right. you know, any of that. But I'll do all of the work post. And post is, is great because it allows you to reinforce your message. It allows there to be some framework of, of conversation. 
Yeah. Now people can talk to you about what was previously talked about and you've got frame to where to go. I don't necessarily want to walk into a room full of strangers and earn credibility about what I'm going to do on the platform tomorrow. Yeah. While we're talking about your speaking style, you've talked about you have a number of mentors, you've got that sort of Frankenstein thing happening and you, and you try things on stage. From what I've heard from you, you have a very unique speaking style, which obviously works. Yeah. Even you've explained it as it's quite pragmatic, you just fire information at people and I totally appreciate that. What it feels like to me is there's not often a lot of storytelling or in the way of vulnerable personal storytelling. Your pathos tends to come through the use of examples and jumping off the stage, interacting with people and that sort of thing. I guess I'm interested in how did you either choose or arrive at or refine that style that is Phil M. Jones? Um, I, I don't think I really know the answer because mm. it's been very organic. Is coming from a workshop style background of doing full day events and then full days and then like three day seminars, etc. The the conversational type style of delivery is is more necessary in that environment. If you're going to yeah. hold a group of people for a day and the lights are up and they all could think of a place they would rather be than yeah. in that given moment is being able to hold a seminar seminar style conversation is something that I then would bring into my into my speaking style. It, it's funny that when events might ask me to to do almost a dress rehearsal or to um, do a full walkthrough, mm. I'm like I find it very difficult to do a rehearsal because I need an audience. Mm. Yeah. The yeah. audience is yeah. a giant part of the act. So my answer to that question typically is, is you provide me an audience, I'll do the rehearsal. Um, provide me an audience and a fee, I'll definitely do the rehearsal. <laughs> yeah. um, so the style comes from me understanding that I'm, I'm a shepherd of information towards that audience, more so than trying to master my speech. Um, I think also it keeps it fun for me. It is, I could deliver 100 plus events a year. If I was delivering a hundred plus events a year, delivering my keynote, I think I would go insane. I think I would flat out go insane. Yeah. I've delivered almost 3,000 professional presentations that I've been paid for, um, and every one of them has been different. And it, it doesn't mean that there aren't huge similarities between them, it's just there has been a significant amount of differences too. And that freedom for me to be able to play in the moment, that ability for me to be able to say, I don't know exactly what's gonna to happen today, is part of what keeps it interesting hmm. and the you know, the style develops because I like that yeah. I, I like yeah. the you know the challenge through creating moments of being of putting questions in it, it is also I'd like to think my speech and, and every event that I deliver is an example of what I'm talking about it, it actually is a product of its product is if I'm trying to engage people to be more creative through the asking of questions and allowing the other person to do the work to be able to fill in the blanks, then my speech should be that too. Now I was listening to a storytelling speaker while I was at uh, an event out here, delivering a lesson on storytelling that didn't include any stories. Yeah, right? yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, hold on, is that we should use your superpower to be able to demonstrate your expertise yeah. as opposed to just tell it. Um, and. And I guess that's where my style comes from, is this ability to be able to say, can I show you what I mean? Yeah. The reason that I don't use a great number of, of personal stories is it's not about me, is almost the worst piece of feedback that I can get at the end of the speech is, man, you were great. 
Yeah. What I'm looking for is I'm looking for people to go away and say, dang, I can do now great things. So like if I, I got a, an Instagram message in, in the other day from a complete stranger, I was just looking for my phone, but um, came off the back of an event 48 hours later that shares with me, hey, I was stu- uh, dubious about that thing that you said during the speech, but I thought I tried it. I tried it yesterday. And I sold a new car that I'm 100% certain of I wouldn't have sold if I was doing it the way that I used to be able to do it. I'm looking for the echo of applause that comes two days, two months, two years later is where I think that we're looking to be able to to do this. And I think that's a big difference about how lots of people show up in the world of speaking is they're looking for the instant recognition for themselves as opposed to saying "I'm, I'm trying to create a change in behavior within this audience full of people. Yeah, and I think an echo in feedback is a great thing that more of us could aim at. Is I'm looking for the result of the result of the result that comes later. The echo of feedback. That's almost where your work is done in a way is not applause at the end of the presentation, but when that salesperson, for instance, is on the front line speaking to a client, and then they've turned a maybe into a yes. That's right. Mm. That's right. And I want to leave people curious. I want them to be thinking. Could it be that simple? Would that really work? I mean, I, I suppose it could. I've I definitely mean, thought these things. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and then being brave enough to say, well, maybe I'll try this. I'll just try it. Give it yeah. a go. Right? And my goal is for them to take, for example, my words and turn them into their words. Is I don't need somebody to say I'm using Phil's magic words. I need somebody 18, 24 months on to forget where they learned it. Yeah, yeah. So when you're um, you're giving people these phrases and your book exactly what to say has some really key phrases and there's forty of them. Oh no, how many are there? How many are there? Well, some of them have a little double up in them yeah. as well. So there's twenty three sections that we talk about in the book. Okay. Yep. So there's twenty ish phrases. <laughs> do you have all of those, or do you expect people to have all of those twenty three kind of internalized? Or do you expect them to have, you know, just for this moment, I need these three? Yeah. Because you kind of know where that conversation's going to go. I, I don't expect anything, is, is the truth. Um, the book is full of examples, and it's full of examples because people can see better in examples. Yeah. And what yes. the book really does is it teaches principles, principles of influence. Yep. And the examples are just one example of that principle showing up in the real world. If you can take the principle, then all of a sudden the words no longer matter because you could find 15 other sequences of words that would create that exact same principle. And that's what I'm asking people to be able to do when they start to put these things into practice. So take, for example, the sequence of words, just imagine understanding that people need to see something before they're then likely to be able to do it. Is It doesn't mean that you always have to use the words just imagine to get somebody to see something. It means that you need to take the principle that before you invite somebody to take an action, can you get them to see themselves doing it before you invite them to do it? There's a dozen ways you can get towards that. Just imagine is a shortcut. So what you really need people to do is understand the principle, not necessarily just memorize those phrases. Yeah. Or yeah. At, least, at least, I guess, predict what the possible answers or thought process behind the answers would be and what you're trying to get towards. Yeah, yeah, it, it is to have some purpose of, of saying, what am I looking to try and prove out of this and how am I looking to be able to make this work? And the way that I often try and get people to, to, to make the words in exactly what to say part of their daily routine mm-hmm. is pick a word a week. Oh, yeah. Think about the dozens of scenarios that could be used. 
Deliver it in the form of play. Don't just think about your high stakes work environments. Think about when you go to the grocery store. Think about when you're ordering a coffee. Think about when you're speaking to your kids, your spouse, whoever. Where are the dozens of sets of circumstances that this set of words could show up? And then look to be able to play with it for a week. Yeah, right. And then the following week, jump to the next set. The following week, jump to the next set. We're about six months in and you've done the book. Mm. Now what I want you to do is to rinse and repeat and do the same thing again. Just to be yeah. able to prove how far you've come um, you know, six months into this. And catch one word what I've said when I, when I talk about that is I want you to play with it. Yeah. There is not a right and a wrong way of doing anything. What we should all be looking to be able to do is, is to explore how we are currently doing things. And with so much online training in the world, so much desire towards uh, people wanting to capture the information of how to do stuff before they do anything, I think too many people are paralyzed for progress. Because mm. like, what's the right way? You, know, you guys help people to develop and produce better presentations and then you'll help them be able to then uh, perform those to a high level once they've been presented. There's no right way and a wrong way. If somebody's like, hey, what's the right way of me doing this speech? Or what's the perfect formula for me to be able to produce a presentation? If we have people thinking that there is a right way or a perfect way, then they just become what I call experts in getting ready. Is they're, they're trying to perfect this on the page and nothing that has ever been created that was brilliant was ever created in a bubble that way around. It came through reps. It came through being brave enough to be able to try it. You see a comedian that goes and does the 60-minute Netflix special. They didn't write that and perform it. Yeah. yeah. And that went through a 1,000 reps in clubs with dozens of bits that they knew that worked. Because for you to deliver with confidence on stage and for you to give an event organizer certainty, you need to have certainty. And that... It means you've got to be brave enough to go try stuff in the real world, whatever that yes. thing might be. And, yeah. and really what you're saying with, you know, the, the exactly what to say, the magic words, and even what we do, this is a starting place. Yeah. The, this will probably work. Start here and you'll make it your own, like you say, as you play with it. Yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. giving you a structure to play. If we think about, you know, kids at kindergarten, what is it? It's structured play. Mm. And look at the growth that comes out of a year at kindergarten. Mm. And this same thing goes through much of childhood learning, structured play. And that's what I think my work provides people is a structure for them to play with. Yes. For sure. Yeah. I've definitely used the phrase, how open-minded would you be on my husband more than once? <laughs> it works. It works. It really does. Yeah. It almost feels manipulative, but it, it does work because it's getting someone to think yeah. in a slightly different way. Let's take that word manipulative for a second as well. Yeah. Because I, I do want to just cross that and I, do, I was going to ask about it yeah it is a very fine line and you know, i've got some one-star reviews online where people will attack my book or attack my work through you know that's slimy it's sleazy it's manipulative it's unethical etc and i've learned to be able to process the thoughts as, as that tells me way more about that person's frame of mind than it does about the quality of my work i kind of have a viewpoint like Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man, that with great power comes great responsibility, right? Is that we we have to be able to say that there are tools in the world that can be used for good or they can be used for evil. Yep. Yeah. The simplicity of, of manipulation versus influence is to understand that the difference between manipulation and influence is integrity. That's it. Yep. And if you are acting from a position of integrity, then guess what? these tools can be used for a great deal of good. If you're coming from a position... Well, um, intent, yes. 
I think integrity and intent are closely linked, okay. but integrity is, is deeper than that. It's being prepared to deal with the consequences of your action. Intent is I didn't mean to do that. Integrity right. is I didn't mean to do that, and if this caused some form of negative effect, I'm going to take full responsibility for that yep. too. And we, we, we see intent show up like in a relationship scenario or with friends. It's like I didn't mean it, and then I'm like abstaining from any... I didn't mean it, so that means I'm off the hook. Yep. It's integrity. I didn't mean it. What do we now need to do to make this right? Yep, okay, okay. Um, I understand that difference. Which yep. I think is very different, particularly in a sales world, is... <sighs> Let's see how this shows up with people buying, say, for example, online courses. Yeah. And a thing that often gets talked about is, well, they didn't do the course, so that's not my problem. So for somebody who's charged a premium level for somebody to go on a course that is saying they didn't get the value from it, and your response is, well, they didn't take the course, therefore I did my job, I provided the value. Yep. Uh-uh, that's intent. Mm-hmm. Integrity is saying I produced a course that I sold for a sum of money that people didn't take for some reason. Why did they not take it? What responsibility do I need to take to get them to actually be able to get the value that they were hoping for yeah. when they parted with the money? Um, and historically in the world of sales, people have been called a hero for stealing. If we think about examples like Jordan Belfort, if we think about examples like the Glengarry Glen Ross movies where, where really they the heroine of the story is somebody who made a load of money, but at what expense? You look at the consumer side of that transaction in Glengarry Glen Ross, you've got a giant part of the public that put their life savings into properties and savings and investments that were never going to mature, weren't really real. You look at the Wolf of Wall Street movie, we get somebody who's held up a hero for stealing granny's savings and putting them into penny stocks that are never going to grow. Like that stuff doesn't happen today can't happen today because we live in a different world if you want to be able to influence with integrity you have to be prepared to wake up tomorrow a week later six months later three years later and say i'm still proud of the decision i helped somebody make that day not i helped somebody make a decision today that got me paid Mm. i helped somebody make a decision today that delivered to them what they were hoping for and some that's the difference in integrity is are they still happy with their decision six months after the fact yeah yeah right yeah, it's value in finding a solution there, isn't it? Long term. I think on that, like, you're finding, helping people find a solution for some sort of issue they have or a foreseeable future that is not ideal. How do you go about, I guess, helping somebody to realise the full extent of maybe their current situation or that future that's not ideal um, and, and the gap that exists between that and what they really want? Uh, because I believe in between there is where you then inject or potentially could inject yourself as the solution or help or make them help them make a decision yeah. to move towards something that feels much better as a much more ideal future. Okay. I mean, how do you do that? There could be a thousand ways to be able to get there. Give me a set of contexts that would be more um, more specific. Set of circumstances. Let's paint a picture. Where are we at? What's happening? Um, let's look at a corporate scenario okay. because I, I do believe that a lot of your stuff can be not just for necessarily external sales, but also internal you sales. Bet. Yep. Yeah. So if you've got um, a decision that needs to be made, you're trying to get management or a board yep. to do something. How do you convince them that, that that is needed? Maybe you need to implement a program, say. Okay. So what you're saying is we have a seat at the board table. We are looking to better get some buy-in towards a bigger picture program that maybe is team development. We're asking for some expenditure yeah. towards a human project that currently isn't on the agenda that you believe is remarkably important. Yeah. Currently, they're not giving it the attention it deserves. Yep. 
Okay, so here's what we need to be able to prove is we need to be able to prove it's worth it. Firstly, what we look to be able to do is to get them to be able to confirm that they want things to be different in the future. You could do this in any given scenario. So what we're asking is a plan-based question. Mm-hmm. So what are our plans here as an organization? Where do we see ourselves maybe six months, three years, ten years on from now? Where, where are we trying to take this? And we might have to give that some more... Um, more narrow of a lane if this is a people development project and that might be saying so three years on from now what do we want people to be saying about our people what do we want our brand to be able to look like in the outer world what do we want joe public to be able to say when they are talking about us as an employer of people there's the question i push back towards leadership well i want them to be able to say really high really high really big picture and there's some distance ahead of it well, what I want yeah. people to be saying is I want them to be able to say that we really care about our people, that we have some of the finest training and development on the planet, that what we have is that we have the ability to be able to grow people from individuals to leaders, boom, 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 boom. Okay, so there's the plans for the future. Now, if that was true, how would you feel as a leader of this organization if that's what people were saying about you? Well, I suppose I'd feel like we'd done great work and that we'd made a real difference, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what would the consequences be if we didn't achieve that? Well, I suppose if we didn't achieve that, then we'd fail to attract more of the right kind of people. We'd probably lose some of the good people that we have in the organization right now. And um, yeah, that'd be pretty calamitous. So what you're saying is that we do need to do something different in order to be able to change that reputation in the future and make sure that we don't lose our good people. Yeah, I need to do something different. Well, how open-minded would you be to perhaps considering one of the options that we're working on in our department that could be that difference, that could help create that change? Right, okay. So what I'm hearing there is quite a structured, really big picture um, for the organization and then maybe the human feel of that. Three steps to this. Yeah. Firstly, is a plan-based question. So it's a plan-based question about something that is significantly important to them in the future that we know to be important. So this could be that if you're in a coaching scenario and you're looking to work with a small business owner, is what are your plans for the business three years on from now? Okay. After your plan-based question is a feelings-based question which is how would you feel when you get there? So see the scenario that we just talked about, how would you feel if that was now true? Now what we're doing is we're passporting somebody through time, having them experience the emotions or a fraction of the emotions of that moment at that point. What I now do is I crush their dreams for the third part of this, which is what are the consequences of not question. Think how what that does is it creates change and it's very mindful because now staying still and doing nothing is no longer an option. It's here's where we want to be, Here's how good it would feel if you're going to get there. And then here's what happens if it doesn't work out. So we're sat here in a hotel suite in Brisbane right now. Next to us is a window. We are on the 10th story of this building. Now I want you to imagine that see this window behind us here, this window could open. And what we're going to do is we're going to open this window and we're going to head on out to the building that is what, like a hundred yards away is another building. Yeah. A hundred yards away is another building. What I'm going to do when we're done with this interview is I'm going to strap a, uh, a wire here. I'm going to run it out tight across to the other building across the way. The wire is an inch and a quarter thick. It is perfectly fixed to this building. It's perfectly fixed out across the way. It's stretched out tight when we're done. Who fancies walking the tightrope with me? Just for fun. You guys up for it? (laughs) Is there a pool down below? Right. You're thinking not so much fun. What about if if, um, I gave you 10 bucks? Oh, this is a game I play. It's like, what's my price point for doing this? It's not $10. Oh. Thousand? Ten grand? Oh, it's pretty high. (laughs) (laughs) 
See, I keep going with numbers right now, and yeah. there might become a point you get to, but it needs to be a big number to make you do something you don't want to do. But what if it's getting warm in here? I mean, crikey warm, and that door has flames coming through it, the one across the way that you'd like to walk out. Yeah. Smoke is starting to fill out your lungs, and the only way out of this building is out this window across safely to the other side. How much do I need to pay you to go? I'm just well, about going to pay you to let me go, right? Right. The motivation suddenly increased. It's changed. Yeah. What almost everybody looks to be able to do when they are trying to influence to somebody is they do that good news story. Come do this and things are going to get better. It's the ability. It's the same as me saying, I'm going to pay you $10 to do a thing you don't want to do. I'm going to pay you $100 to do a thing you don't want to do. I'm going to pay you $1,000 to do a thing you don't want to do. The number needs to get to a point where it's so significant for you to do the thing you don't want to do. If I can lower the floor and I can actually show you the consequences of not doing it, if I can yep. create something that's making you uncomfortable for staying the same and give a prize to the other side, now all of a sudden you create change. Yep. And that, that's what you're looking to do sat in the boardroom in this scenario. Look what happens. Plan-based question. That yep. is getting them to give me their version of happiness in the future. That is like the $1,000, $10,000 reward, the other side of the tightrope. What I then do is ask them how would they feel when they get there. That how would you feel question turns $10,000 into $100,000 into a million dollars in terms of feeling. Because now what I've done is I've just 10x'd it by making this emotive and moving them towards that moment. Mm -hmm. When I say what were the consequences of not doing this, what have I done? I just set the building on fire. Made it uncomfortable. Correct. I've said that actually yeah. doing nothing is now no longer an option. So the obvious choice is... Let's do this tightrope thing. That looks fun. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've got to do it anyway, right? We've got to do something because we yeah. can't stay here. And I haven't got a better option, so that's the option. So now my thought process is, yep, that's going to be uncomfortable, but it's still the best option. Correct. It's going to be uncomfortable, and it's worth it. Because the other side over there is some money that I don't have right now. Yep. What could I do with that money? I've already decided what I'm going to do with that money. I'm going across there because I'm going to build a new house for the kids, right? It, it, yeah, it, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, I don't want to stay here. There looks hard and worth it. There looks hard and worth it. But then what happens as well is you show up on the guide in that, right? Is if mm. we're in this boardroom scenario, it's like, well, don't worry, I got this. Because yes, it's going to be difficult, but I'm going to hold your hand. I'm going to make sure you're strapped in safely. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to be right behind you every step of the way. Or I'm going to be leading yep. this. All you need to do is to hold on behind me. I've done this before. Yep. What often people think they're trying to do is to sell an idea. You're not. You're looking yeah. to lead a change. And that's what they're looking for in you. They're looking for your leadership to be able to say, okay, this is worth it, and I can trust you to be able to go the distance and go the journey. And we're back to that integrity piece, is getting somebody to give you the decision to be able to put the funds into this new project for you to be able to work on the people. That's not what needs to happen. What needs to happen is you need to do something worth it once given that funds, given that time to be able to go to work with those people. Yeah. So you've got to be committed to the work that comes after the decision, not just the decision itself. Yep. So again, they've got to trust not only the, you know how to deliver what you've promised, but with certainty as well. Correct. And, let, that certainty thing. And, and, and let's look at where this often goes wrong from a speaker's point of view, particularly speakers in their early end of their career. His client says, can you do this? And can you help with that? And can you help with the other? And the natural reaction is yes, 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 yes. Mm. And then you find yourself delivering material that is outside of your zone of genius. And that you are now less than your best in that given area because you said yes to something you probably shouldn't have done. And I see this a lot with people in the speaking space who are earlier in their career that, that want to be a speaker. And I can speak on motivation. I can speak on leadership. I, I, yeah, I can speak about sales. I can speak about creating change. I can speak about innovation. Yeah, I can do that. I put a speech together about. 
and they end up potentially hurting their brand as a result of which from trying to be helpful. Whereas you should be able to do things where you have enough confidence to say, no, not, not, I think I can do it. Like I got this is where you want to be is, is in that area. Yeah. So try and stay within lanes. There's, stay a, lane, yeah. there's a big amount of confidence comes with them. And we've even learned this as well with saying to somebody, no, with, right. I don't, I don't think I can help you. I don't think we're a fit and you've got to let that one go. And as you say, especially early in, in a career, yeah. wherever that career is, and you've got you know two phone numbers to call, and you're going to say no to one. And like it takes a lot of confidence to be able to do that, right? Correct. Mm. Well, the thing with the speaking business, again, that very few people understand is is you have capacity. There is full, right? Is yeah. is the speaking business model is that of a Michelin star restaurant? You have a certain number of tables with a certain number of covers. That is all you've got. So if what I do is I sit somebody down at the table that doesn't like fine dining that really wanted burgers and chips, they're going to be left disappointed with their experience of doing business with me, but they stole a seat from somebody who could have got a magical moment. If I think about my speaking business, I have space to deliver up to 80 events a year. So if I take an event where I agree to do a thing that isn't me working it at my optimum position, it's me delivering something in an area that isn't my strength, well, not only did I steal something from my inventory that could have been a chance of me delivering something that's better, I also add to my reputation. And I'm potentially, in that scenario, adding to my reputation in a negative way. If somebody says, hey, yeah. I saw Phil Jones speak, and yeah, he was fine. Mm. That's not the reaction That's the memory yeah. that, they, that they leave with. And that may well have been true in that given moment. Mm. But that reputation then runs in that direction too. And the speaking business is... is is something that should be taken very seriously as a long-term viewpoint, is that it is a referral-led business. Speeches get you more speeches. I got a booking uh, just earlier on this year from somebody who saw me speak in the past. They saw me speak eight years ago. Wow. And that's not uncommon, that yeah. that, that ripple comes around again. And, and, and you need to be seen doing the thing that you know you can deliver to, not that you think you can deliver to. Yeah, yeah. So talk about whoever's hiring you or your potential client needs to trust you. Yeah. But we kind of can trust a lot of people. Like everybody has a website or a blog or a podcast. We trust that people will deliver the work. Yep. And so there's an element comes in there of we're going to go with this person or this solution because we like them. Sure. Like there's that element of like and so you need to build, um, build rapport there. I'm sure yep. you've talked about that, right? Which means we need to know something about the person and uh, have some sort of that, have a conversation and build a relationship with them. Like, we knew you were coming to Brisbane. Yeah. And we had you on our wish list of people we wanted. We thought, right, let's let's reach out now. And there was a few avenues we could have gone with. And at some point, we felt we had to draw a line because when does showing him that we're interested become, please get out of our motel room? (laughs) There's a point where it becomes weird and creepy and, ooh, how did you find that out? Where is that line when you're looking at trying to give them reason to like you by showing that you're interested as opposed to being too much? Um it's a hard question because I guess it's the the circumstances around it could be plentiful is for example your level of interest in us being able to get this interview today there's a level of relevance and scarcity attached to it in this given moment in Mm. the in the same city for a constrained period of time Um, the work that you do within the world of presentations is very much aligned with where my work sits so that that level of relevance is is true. There's also a couple of other pieces that you have in credibility towards getting towards this moment in that I know that you've interviewed some other people that I respect. That 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 piece of backstory 
all of a sudden says, well, okay, we can now push a little bit further because some of the other ingredients are in place. If you think about that as somebody trying to progress up a corporate ladder and that what they want to be able to do is to win the attention of the CEO, if what they are is they've started, they've been in the role four days and what they're doing is they're they're driving to be outside the CEO's house or they're looking to be able to bump into him at the, at the golf club or wherever it might be, that might be too much if you haven't got those other pegs in the wall first. Yep. Is if that same individual had been in their role for uh, for 12 months, had broken every record in the role that they're in right now, had the support of their senior manager, is actually also winning attention from the competition in another given area, had yeah. proven to understand that he too liked golf as well as the CEO liked golf and that they just so happened mm. to be playing on the same course at the same day and those other little facts are already lined yeah. up. Now the the request for a meet or the request for attention is fine because there's enough pegs in the board yeah. behind it that says actually this stalking might pay off. Um, so I think we mm. should be looking to build everybody looking to create a me or everybody looking to create an opportunity should be building their resume or their CV so when that moment appears the answer is going to be yes you've done, so a you've long done. time before you actually need something you need some yeah. credibility you, points that sit behind it it's like you've done the work you've you've made your own luck really yeah. isn't it and you know I get a lot of people ask me if I'd be on the show from a podcast point of view and my typical answer is yes but I don't want to be somebody's first guest I want to see that they're committed to this before I give a piece of my commitment towards it. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's not that I want to use my reputation to, don't want to use my reputation to launch their show. Is I, I don't want to be a part of their test. <laughs> yeah. Is, is if, if they're doing a show and they're committed to being able to produce a quantity of episodes over a period of time and that they produce it to a standard and they do the work that it takes to be able to get a number of other quality guests, then I'll play my part in that lineup. But I don't want to be the shortcut for them. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit of a realisation I've had because I don't know how many years I've been following your stuff. I think originally on a Grant Baldwin podcast from years ago, right? I don't know. So maybe it's been three or four years I've been following your work, but I don't know when like the name Thomas Craft popped up into your consciousness. Right. I may have been liking your stuff for a few years, but before it became repetitious and you saw, hey, who's this Thomas Craft guy in Brisbane? Yeah. It may have not been that long ago. So I think being conscious of what's their perspective of me. Correct. And having those credibility back points as well is is you did some work to be able to reverse engineer a speech of mine and give some commentary mm-hmm. around that. Um, that you had reached out to give interviews towards Drew Tarvin. You'd asked Drew, who's a dear friend of mine, for an introduction. I think I had an email that came through in my bo- inbox. I think Bonnie, my assistant, now has you on the list of people that we may do podcast interviews with so that there's already in the, you know, through Mm. the qualification criteria is that your application hasn't been shredded. (laughs) Uh, It's in there and then then it's convenient. I I think what we should all take greater awareness towards is the power of timing. Yeah. That's all, that's basically all this was, right? But that's, that's what so many things are is people like, how do I, how do I, how do I hide it? You create the moment that makes it the easy choice. Is if you'd have asked via my assistant, can we do an in-person interview? You'd be like, you're joking? Yeah. yeah. When's that going to yeah. happen? Because I wouldn't put time on my schedule for this because that time on my schedule is sacred for other reasons. Yeah. But if convenience can show up just because there is a period of time that wasn't commercially planned for, then you can make stuff happen. And everybody can take something from that. If there's a meeting they need to get with somebody, if there is an opportunity, like be patient and work to create the moment. 
as opposed to ask for the moment is work to create it and then when you're in that moment make sure that you've got your pegs in the board that mean that your story adds up at that moment in time so it so it adds yeah because even if you're not I mean obviously right now you're not speaking or at a conference or something but this is time you could be chilling out debriefing yourself getting ready for the next thing facetiming yeah. the family yeah i'm going to the yeah. pool in a minute and i'm going to call my wife yeah. that's what's going to happen yeah. next that's the most important things to me today <laughs> for sure um so the question that we ask all of our guests is is there a book or a resource or something that's impacted the way that you speak um impacted the way that i speak um i still think the most impactful book on my life in its entirety is dale carnegie's how to win friends and influence people yeah classic. that's a powerful book just to be able to change the way you think I think one of the most impactful books to me over the more recent years is a book from a friend of mine called Michael Bungay Stanya that wrote a book called The Coaching Habit. I've heard of that, yeah. Probably the best book that I've read in the last yeah in the last five years. Again, another short read, um, but talks again towards this power of of questions and curiosity. Yeah. It's meant to help people coach in ten minutes or less. However, I think we could all be more coach like in yeah. all of our work, and, and and Michael's work talks towards that piece a lot. And then in the way that I speak, in the way that I speak, in the way that I speak, um, less of a book and, and more of just some of the involvement of people like Michael Port and Amy yeah. Port and the work that those guys do uh, has made me more intentional from a performance point of view than I ever had been in the past. Yeah. My early years were all about you know, content delivery and high energy. Um, they gave me a lens that could add to the performance side of what I deliver yep. that I had never given consideration. And I think that's probably the biggest current factor that I'm working on. Yeah. Awesome. And then final question, where can people find you? Um, where, where can people find me? If you cannot find me online by Googling <laughs> Phil space M space Jones, I need the M. Otherwise you're going to find a uh, Manchester United soccer player or even Phil Jones speaker is actually a manufacturer of bass amplifiers. <laughs> so, so Google search can hurt me that way around. Yeah. But if you use the M, you'll find me. If you want to be able to join in and continue the conversation, both LinkedIn and Instagram are the two platforms yep. that you're more likely to find me than any of the other social networks. And uh, website is philmjones.com. Brilliant. Excellent. And I think I need to say, like I, like I said, I, I listened again to your Audible original yesterday. That was the best $16 membership, whatever it is, for Audible. That's, that's phenomenal. I think a lot of what you you talk about and write about is All in, in that. that four hours. It's the proudest piece of work that I've created to date. Right. Well, congratulations on that. And thank you so much, Phil M. Jones, for being on the Presentation Boss podcast. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, wasn't he dreamy? There's just so much value and so much goodness, and we had so much fun recording with Phil M. Jones. Now, let's talk about, oh, I can't believe I'm going to say this, exactly how to win. Yeah, you did. (laughs) A signed copy of Phil M. Jones's Exactly What to Say. And I should say, it's signed by Phil, not by us. Important distinction. (laughs) Here's exactly what you need to do if you want to be in that draw, is to jump on iTunes and leave us a review for the Presentation Boss podcast. And a review is the one where you write a few words about how obviously brilliant this podcast is, and then flick us an email to let us know that you've done it. Email us, podcast at presentationboss.com.au, and if you can do all of that before the end of March 2020, you'll be in the draw, and we'll send that book out to one of those lucky entrants. Either way, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Presentation Boss podcast and letting us share our excitement about Phil M. Jones and the value he brings with you. Thanks for listening to today's show. Head to presentationboss.com.au slash podcast 
where you'll find the show notes for this episode, all other episodes, and other free resources. If you know someone that you'd like to hear from on this show or think that you have something of value to share, email us at podcast at presentationboss.com.au. Most importantly, we rely on you to share the information in this podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please recommend us to a friend. Or we'd love for you to give us a review on iTunes. It helps more people find us. Have a great week. So for the train spotters and the long-time listeners, you might remember that we did a speech breakdown of one of Phil M. Jones's keynotes back in episode 16, which makes him the first person who's uh, appeared on our podcast twice. Except for me, who has appeared 46 times now. Does that mean this is my podcast and you're a guest? Ooh. <laughs> I retract my statement. <laughs>